Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, BuzzFeed's London staff go in search of new jobs. TV productions try socially distanced filming. And is the end nigh for BBC Four? Plus, Helen Thomas takes the reins at Radio 2. And in the Media Quiz, we play Beat the Bookshelf as Richard and Judy's book club returns to save us from lockdown purgatory. It's all to come in today's Media Podcast. And joining me today via my exhilaratingly temperamental broadband connection, we have no less than three excellent returning guests. Uh, first up, the podcaster and deputy editor of Pilot TV, Boyd Hilton, is here. Hi, Boyd. Hi, Ollie. Uh, we last saw each other at an awards ceremony in a cabaret bar. And yes. I think that actually turned out to be my last night out in London before lockdown. Oh, God, how horrific. Yeah. Um, although, Would I have chosen to spend it differently, uh, had I known? <laughs> although I have to say that that went from being um, uh, an award ceremony that I didn't care about at all to being the greatest award ceremony known to man because we won for our pilot TV podcast. Yeah, and, and suddenly it's, it's no longer enough to be nominated. No. No, you have to win. It's the first thing I've ever won in my life, so that's very exciting. Congratulations. Thanks. Um, I've, I've started watching Hollywood and Trial by Media and Normal People. What else should be on my watch list? Um, Gangs of London. If you like ultra-violence and um, riveting storylines and uh, beautifully filmed, yeah, Gangs of Gangs of London on Sky slash Now TV. Okay, thank you. Uh, also returning to the show from Radio 4's Woman's Hour and the brilliant Fortunately podcast, it's only Jane Garvey. Hi, Jane. Hello, Ollie. Isn't Woman's Hour brilliant then? Just the podcast. Oh. I'm, well, you know, let's not probe too deeply. One thing that I would say is absolutely brilliant is your sexy new artwork, for fortunately, which I spotted this morning. Yes, preposterous, isn't it? I know. Um, <laughs> uh, they, they can do a lot with uh, with technology these days. Yeah, we look quite human. I quite I quite fancy both of us, which is... It's, um, it's yeah. good. Yeah, How it long good. were the BBC pestering you to get something that looks a bit more professional? Uh, well, uh, yes, it's a good point. About, about two and a half years, actually. Yeah, well... Uh, I don't think. I think the, the fact that you just used to quickly just snap us in the piazza um, was just because they didn't think it would last, and they weren't that invested. So now they 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 have to accept the fact that fortunately he's here to stay. So they probably spent a few quid on that photo. Yeah, I'm rather I'm rather pleased with it. Yeah. Good. And actually, as you say, for people who haven't heard the show, it is recorded in the Piazza at Broadcasting House in a coffee shop or outside yes, a coffee shop. Outside, so yeah. you're used to working kind of on the fly. Yeah. But Woman's Hour is a very different proposition. What's it been like working during lockdown? It's funny you should say that. It is a bit different doing that. Um, it's a really, do you know, 
I really need to write a diary right now because it's very, very odd. So you go into Broadcasting House and I always look forward to going. And we're one of the few programmes still coming live from the building. Then when I get there, I get a bit depressed by it because the building is, I think, 7% full at the moment. Mm. So there's a lot of empty corridors and the mice are, are not as omnipresent as they used to be because they used to feast on those little bit of those lunch remnants in the keyboard, wedged into the keyboards of all the hot desking. Um, I even miss them. Um, they're not there either. Maybe they've succumbed to the virus. I don't know. So it's actually a bit tragic and I'm not enjoying it very much. And it's um, and central London being in central London is a, a demoralizing experience. It's it's, it's very. It's also very... not the experience that your listeners are having crucially, no. which I suppose is you know is usually, you know, in radio you're always trying to relate to people live radio of the type that you're mm. doing. You're trying to relate to the listeners and be in their moment. And actually, but the fact that you're in a studio makes it different in a strange way. If you're at home, mm. it would feel more like their lives. Yes, and when I'm at home, I live in West London in quite a nice um, neighbourhood, you know, near Shepherd's Bush Market, and there's lots, there's actually lots going on still in the, the area of London where I live. But in centre, in town, it's just a poor, it's a bedraggled band of, of homeless folk and people who work at the BBC. And um, I'm afraid it is 28 days later, and um, it doesn't do a lot for your spirits. Actually, but there are loads of people still coming into BH. The, the security staff who are always chipper and cleaning ladies and, and men are still there. You know, we can't forget that it's not just overpaid prats like me who are going in still. Um, it's um, sorry, I'm not overpaid, am I? I'd forgotten about that. Um, <laughs> I'm officially, um, <laughs> yeah, equality. Depends Jane who you're comparing has, yourself. Yeah, to, exactly. She's had to life. take she's had to take a back seat just for the <laughs> pandemic, but she'll be back. Um, uh, so that was a very long answer to your question. It's difficult, is how I would describe it. And also, I'm not seeing I'm not seeing any guests. I'm on my own in the studio, and it's a bit a bit a bit a, a bit sad. Well, I'm pleased to be providing you some more virtual company now. You can't see us either, but yeah, at least you can sort of see us through your laptop. Um, And uh, finally, last but not least uh, uh, of our returning panellists is the broadcast consultant and director of Radio TechCon, Anne Charles. Hi, Anne. Hello. Lovely to be back. Uh, Lovely to have you. Now, you've been busy helping broadcasters set up with remote recording, haven't you? I'm curious um, what the one thing is, (laughs) if you can distill it down for us, that people really need to know to make better remote recordings? Think about what you're doing first. Don't panic. Think about your audio routing. So think about where the noise is going into your computer or your device and where the noise is coming out. And if you really have nothing, make sure that you plug some headphones in because that will stop some of the reverb and feedback that you might get. What are those like really common errors that you're getting when when people are saying, oh, I thought I could... I've done links from here before it sounds fine and you're thinking it really doesn't. Um, I'm not having to deal with too much of that at the moment, but I think it's normally when people are setting up inside their home office and they've got a kind of a thin wall behind them. And unlike you, they who've done it lots, haven't kind of put up a duvet behind them or done something to reduce the echo. So that's probably... Spoiling my trade secrets now. I have a very fetching Kath Kidston (laughs) number attached to this stepladder behind me. Well, you're quite lucky that I, I have actually recorded in this room before entirely underneath a blanket. So at least, you know, I'm not doing that today. It gets a bit well, hot, doesn't it? <laughs> whenever contributors do that, and I can see them on the webcam, I always say to them at the beginning, are you sure you're going to be able to be under that blanket for the next half an hour? Have you really thought this through? My, Seems like a friend, good idea to begin with. 
My friend had a good tip. Uh, he doesn't do that. He just puts two pillows at right angles behind his microphone and just makes the microphone have a bit of insulation rather than the rest of the room, which is a much less <laughs> warm way of doing things. Okay, let's get on with some news, shall we? Because that is what we're here to do. And, uh, well, another week and another round of redundancies, unfortunately, because BuzzFeed has announced that its operations in the UK will close uh, and Australia too, as it focuses on its US audience. Uh, And there are actually only about 10 or so London-based journalists left uh, at BuzzFeed to be affected by this, but it still feels like a significant blow. Yes, I mean, they've had some good stories, and obviously from the point of view of UK coverage, and just for the individuals, at the moment there's there's so many job cuts and changes and things going on, and I feel really sorry for all of the journalists who are having to kind of deal with that on top of everything else. I... I feel very sorry for the journalists involved. I mean, Jane, it is remarkable that BuzzFeed did manage to turn the story around. Uh, you know, when they started their news division, it was almost impossible to hear any reference to that growth without someone referencing, you know, listicles or lolcats. Um, yeah. And now they are taken seriously as a news organisation. Well, they have broken some some good stories, haven't they? And they've got some really, really talented young journalists working for them, all of whom I assume will be snapped up within the next couple of days and weeks. And you really hope so, because they absolutely richly deserve that. I, I'm a bit puzzled, I have to say. Did it ever make money? Does Does BuzzFeed make money? Is that what it's about? Does anybody, does Boyd know? Um, I don't know for sure, but I doubt it. I doubt it very much that it does make money, yeah. Um, I think maybe the US operation alone makes money, but but it certainly seems to be the case that they've they've, they've made these cuts to save money because it is economically rather perilous, yeah. Well, the problem surely is they make enough money perhaps, you know, in normal times to justify the listicles yeah. and the lolcats, but probably not the in-depth news journalism. I mean, that's the bottom line for every news organisation. Uh, advertising it? presumably is just plummeted, well... How, how? What kind of advertising would they get at the moment? Uh, to be honest, I never really understood their business model anyway. I don't really understand the business model of a lot of these online um, uh, news services, journalistic operations, um, because there's hardly any advertising anyway in that in that space. So I, I never really understood how how it generates money. And they seem the focus with BuzzFeed seemed to be very much on. They did break some brilliant stories, and I think almost because of the cliche of the listicles, which of course it's completely. gone beyond that for years and years now um i think almost the journalists seem to be working harder at getting exclusives and providing in-depth great in-depth stories that they did but how they ever planned on making money out of that i I don't know and you know i I, that that seemed bewildering when everyone else is veering towards paywalls you know um and find and getting people to join they did have the similar thing to the guardian they had on all their stories you know if you wanted to join you could you could pay money to them but you didn't have to um, and I think it's easier for The Guardian to sell that kind of idea, perhaps, than BuzzFeed. And actually, I mean, BuzzFeed are still investing in their news business, just not here in the right. US. They're still going to be spending, according to them, $10 million more than they make from their operation this wow. year to keep it afloat. I wish I right. ran. Well, I had my business finance access like that. I was going to say. Yeah, I'd, just, um, I'd just spend $10 million more than I've got. Well, it's it's Silicon point. Valley money, isn't it, rather than media money? That's the but aren't the investors going to want their money back at some point? What about the staff as well, Boyd? Because yeah. uh, I saw Polly Curtis from Tortoise Media tweeting that it was unfair, basically, that the furloughed staff won't be able to drown their sorrows in the pub together. But it raises a serious point, doesn't it, which is... In the UK media, basically getting your new gig is often about bumping into someone at the pub or in an informal setting going for a coffee. How do you get a new job in a pandemic? 
Oh God, that sounds terrible that, that you're, you're saying that the only way of getting a new job for some, for some excellent young up and coming journalist is to bump into someone in a, in a bar. Um, I hope that's not true. I think, um, I think they seem to go out of their way actually on Buzzfeed to, to find up, good up and coming journalists or even fairly well established ones who they wanted and knew could provide the kind of story that they needed. I mean, I'm thinking of Patrick Strudwick, for example, who is their LGBT kind of correspondent and, and, seemed to come up with a relentless series of incredibly fascinating and important exposés of how um, gay people were being treated around the world and stuff. I'm, you know, I think they went out and found him to do that job. And I think that seemed to be what they were doing. So I still think expertise, if you like, um, for journalists will be the place to go rather than want to, having to socialise with people in bars and clubs, hopefully, anyway. So I suppose the short answer to my question in a way is Twitter, isn't it? It's basically what you're saying. You can build up a reputation uh, yeah. for breaking the kind of stories you did on BuzzFeed and people will find you online. No, I was, I was noticing on Twitter that a lot of uh, some of my BBC colleagues were, were tweeting in favour of particular BuzzFeed journalists and reporters mm. today saying, yeah. you've got to snap this guy up or this person's really worth looking at. I think we sometimes underestimate there is a real, there is a... a, a genuine solidarity amongst the a lot of the media community and Twitter's a real help actually. I know there's a lot of negativity but there can also be, it's really useful as a platform to, to endorse other people and help them out. Yeah and in fact I mean we've been here before with BuzzFeed as well and the previous <laughs> round of redundancies, uh, you know there was Louise Ridley who went off to Huffington Post and, and James Ball and Scott Bryan all of whom have been on this show before I guess one thing that BuzzFeed did do quite well is it allowed those journalists to have their own social media profiles and really own mm. the stories. There was always a byline there. Yeah, and I just think they work harder, honestly, at, at, at the stories, at getting the stories and, and at kind of relentlessly coming up with stories, perhaps than traditional old media people like me. OK, talking of old media, uh, Rupert Murdoch has given up his bonus after big losses at News Corp. Uh, Jane, it does make you wonder how much... Rupert Murdoch's bonus is if it's going to have a positive impact on a company losing $1 billion this quarter. Realistically, how big do you think that bonus was? Um, does anyone have any idea how much that might be? I wouldn't have the uh, first notion. Also, I'm wondering whether what this does this tell us anything about Times Radio? Whether maybe uh, is there any question mark over that now? What, what do you think about that? Well, the losses, Anne, seem to be mainly. In Australia, uh, there's a couple of the regional papers in Australia and, and a cable venture out there called Foxtel, which seems to have backfired spectacularly. So I, I guess one thing that Murdoch is quite good at doing is separating off the different countries yeah. within the empire, isn't he? Though I was a bit, cons you know, obviously poor, poor Rupert. I don't know how he's going to manage going through this period with without his bonus. Um, <laughs> it's just been so hard. Um, but... <laughs> But I was a bit concerned because they said that they've got cash reserves. So they've made this loss over three months and they say they've got cash reserves of just over a billion. So if they can lose a billion in three months and they've got, does that mean they've only got three months left of reserves for the whole company? I, I don't know enough about how the finances of the whole thing works out, but that leapt out of me as being, well, these are big figures that we're talking about. But actually, mm. if you're running that kind of international business, it doesn't take long before you've run out of cash and presumably the pandemic had i mean it's going to have a colossal impact on the organization over the course of the next 12 months i mean never mind advertising in terms of buzzfeed what the hell is it doing to this organization it must it must be devastating well we have the irony of um more people consuming news more people listening to radio i mean yeah. i don't i haven't heard anything to say that times radio is is stopping its rollout at all no. um but less advertising revenue coming in so hopefully that that's got to balance out soon hasn't it all those 
we're all in trouble. But, yeah, I, I must mean, say, one of the things that I've done to change my media consumption habits uh, is I've got uh, not a subscription because I only take it three times a week, but I've got my newsagent to deliver paper copies of The Times to my door, and which why? I never used to do. Why have you done that? <laughs> Because there's just, I'm at home all the time and it's quite nice, especially whilst trying to do childcare at the same time, to sit yeah. there with a paper copy and glance up and down without feeling like I'm glued to my phone. And I've noticed that it's not got very many ads in it, but here well, I am yeah, as a new subscriber. If you were an advertiser, would you want your gear advertised around this content? You, you're just not, why on earth would you? Well, at one point, weren't the, uh, all the advertisers demanding they weren't going to have any of their adverts positioned in print media next to anything to do with the virus, which I think they, they kind of rode back on a bit because I think, I think in the end that became completely counterproductive because people rather resented that fact that they were still advertising. And now you see, I think the advertising just certainly, you know, has been quite, quite um, agile in responding. And they're still, I think, the, I think the, the, for, first of all, they kind of seem to, cut advertising completely and now I think it mm. seems to be coming back and they seem to be tailoring it more suitably to the audiences and embracing the possibilities um, of, of, of these times that we're living in, if we can call it that. Um, but I, I, I don't think, I think the Murdoch organisation is, is in a strange situation where he's kind of sold off the TV, the, the Sky TV arm, which I bet, you know, in terms of like the streaming element of Sky, Now TV, etc., it's probably become more and more successful in this period. And the, and he's launching Times Radio, and I don't understand how that's ever going to make any money either. Um, so it's, and the intellectual property as well that yeah. went with that sale. I mean, uh, obviously he got a very good price for it, but you wonder at times like these would be quite helpful to have The Simpsons mm. and Avatar right. under your belt, wouldn't it? Exactly. Intellectual yeah. property is, is is the burgeoning place. TV is the bur you know is the burgeoning place, particularly the streaming variety of it. Um, and he's abandoned that whole world. That's it. Seems an odd way of doing it. But it's not just about the money, though, is it? It's about power and influence. So if you've got multiple news outlets around the world across print and online and radio and some telly, then that also gives you some things that you might want as an individual in terms of influence. I, I don't know what you're trying to suggest about Rupert Murdoch wanting power and influence, Anne, but as a preposterous suggestion. Let's get things back onto a positive footing because uh, film and TV productions can now start shooting again after lockdown restrictions are eased. So, Boyd, this was the case of um, the Prime Minister's roadmap being firmly interpreted. You know, he said, if you can't work from home, we're encouraging you actively to get back to work. That includes film crews. Uh, it's too late for Love Island, but it's good news for audiences, this, isn't it? Well, it is. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's better news for the, for the thousands, millions of people in the industry, TV um, and film industry, most of whom are freelance and have been left, as far as I can make out, most of them not having any support from the government, not eligible for the furlough scheme, etc. So I think for those people, it's really good news. I, I just, don't, but like all these government announcements about they're allowing certain industries to suddenly to go back to work, the practicalities of it. Well, how the hell is it going to work? I mean, you know, not every TV show and film can be about the world of social distancing, um, which we've seen a few of those, frankly, slightly depressing, you know, dramas talking about social distancing. I, I, you know, I'd rather not see that, frankly. So how you make a film, a TV, a TV drama, a scripted show, how you make a scripted show in the times of social distancing, I don't get it. I don't see how that's going to work. So um, it, is, it, is a, it seems to be a thorny situation. The government just said, yeah, we're allowing this. And then everyone else has to go, well, how is that going to work? Um, how are you yeah, going to make normal so people? Many Alan Bennett monologues. Yeah, right. How are you going to make normal people <laughs> in which every other scene is a sexual intimacy scene um, filmed in the closest of close-ups 
with the utmost of intimate activity between people. How is that going to work? in these times. Well, and presumably there might be a technical solution to these things. Oh, in terms of the social distancing, yeah. I mean, there's going to have to be some artistic choices being made. I mean, Boyd was talking about normal people. Uh, the way to keep some, some of the audience, if you listen to the spectacular edition of Liveline on RTE, where people were discussing it happy, would be only to have actors that are already married. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, some artistic and shot decisions. And also in practical terms, there's going to be lots of directional mics. There's going to be lots of boom poles. Um, one of the biggest problems at the moment is going to be access to equipment because um, a lot of that stuff, a lot of broadcasters have wanted to buy at the same time. So there's a bit of a supply issue. So if you're looking to pivot your business, now's the time to go into manufacturing equipment that lets you film remotely or at a distance. That had never occurred to me, genuinely. That is an absolutely fascinating nugget of knowledge. But of course, it's entirely logical. But it's also once you get the equipment, you've you know got to sterilise it and spray it down and make sure it's not being passed from person to person, haven't you? So, uh, also, I, I wonder whether normal people, which I really like, would have been as big a hit had it been broadcast in more normal times, if you like. Mm. I think it's just the fact that all that wonderful, and it is, you know, what, God, the way I said that is in itself nauseating, but <laughs> all that wonderful uh, intimacy and everything that everybody's enjoying so much, uh, it's, because, it's precisely because in some cases that's exactly what we're missing out on at the but moment. Is, I mean a sex scene is an extreme example so it's one that you can just say well okay you'll make dramas without sex scenes they managed in classic Hollywood but actually every element of filming a drama mm. involves anti-social distancing things doesn't it I mean just yeah. makeup for example I mean how can you do makeup in a socially distant way you can't you have to have actors doing their own makeup there's no other way is there? No there's no other well, they've way. They've been saying that haven't they that the um the when they go back to filming EastEnders and Coronation Street, the actors will be doing their own thing. I mm. also think we're increasingly going to see companies starting to say, well, it does say that you're allowed to do things at a closer distance if there's no other way. And I think the unions will have already started to talk about this, at what point people will feel under pressure to that they're not able to say, I'm not comfortable with, mm. with being close together in shot. Mm. Well, I have seen I have seen um, producers of fil certain films saying that they're going to have to quarantine the entire crew um, and cast and everyone, and that's the only way to go, get around it is to test everyone. A bit like the way they're doing with Premier League football. You know, the Premier League football effectively they're going to create a, a situation where everyone involved is tested frequently, and they're going to essentially be together in some space whereby they can then you know then they mitigate the risk but I, I saw today I saw about an hour ago on BBC News the news today that um, the Office of National Statistics has said that only one in 400 people in the UK has actually got the virus now I don't know how they work that out but if that's true mm. then I feel like actually the risk is slightly less worrying about everything than but that's a slightly bigger question than perhaps well it depends it depends on the unanswered questions of how many people have had it and how many people are yet to have it doesn't wow. it and and that's i guess at the well you and talk whether about the football. testing is good enough anyway yeah Sure. So you talk about football, Boyd. Mm. There's also, and, and this is a media story because it's about broadcast rights, uh, there's also uh, a lot of fallout around the Premier League. Well, you explain the story. Basically, they thought they could get away with uh, returning to play and not having to pay fines to the broadcasters. It doesn't look that way. No, because the um, the contract with the broadcasters, which of course is the biggest TV contract in the world, the the Premier League, um, it's, it's it's worth five billion over three years. It's an extraordinary amount of money, and they and they're supposed to. And each of the major broadcasters, BT Sports, Sky, Amazon Prime, etc., have their own 
specific demands about how many matches they get, when they show them, and they have their specific slots, you know, Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, that's all part of the deal. So the Premier League can't then come along and say, well, we'll give you all these games behind closed doors that won't have the same atmosphere and it will be completely weird and bizarre and we're going to have to show them at a certain time uh, our choosing. It just doesn't work like that. So there is, uh, there is going to, they will have to um, give back a lot of the money or at least, you know, make sure that they don't charge as much money for the rest of the matches that are going to happen if and when the yeah, Premier so League, Premier comes League clubs will have to pay back between 300 and 350 million pounds in broadcast revenues even if they find a way to finish the season yeah but Jane I, I understand why the clubs wouldn't be happy about that obviously but from the broadcaster's point of view do you buy their argument that it is a different experience because there's no one in the stadium or, or actually is that facetious because you know, football fans are so desperate to watch the matches mm. that they'd watch it through, you know, I've got to, yeah. a telescope. I, I, I can speak with all the authority of a genuine armchair football fan. I, and also um, a card-carrying, crop-haired feminazi. Uh, so I can see I can see the other side that I think Jenny Eclair tweeted last week, why is there so much fuss and endless talk about whether football is going to come back? People never talk about cultural events and theatre and cinema, and we're all m- missing those too. And I, I completely get what she means, but at the same time, I'm afraid I am that person who could think of nothing better tonight than sitting down to watch, I don't know, um, a completely pointless FA Cup replay between <laughs> Oldham Athletic and Brighton. Um, I, I absolutely, that's not the Premier League, but I would absolutely watch it like a show. And you're there regardless of whether the crowd and are I there in the stadium. And I give a damn whether there's 1,500 people in there or 55,000. You, you, so I, should I, the broadcasters I, drop this approach then of asking for their money? Well, I, or should they? I don't know whether... I think they probably... We, so many smaller football clubs are going to go out of business, aren't they? Or you fear for their future. And these are such... Again, we're outside the Premier League here, but these are vital parts of communities all over the country. And whether whether I might like it or not, they are hugely significant in the lives of so many people. The good and, news um, is, Jane, that you can, you can watch German Bundesliga football this weekend, from this weekend. Can I? Yeah. OK. Yeah. Um, well, that's... That, it's something that's on BT Sport, isn't yeah. it? Okay, I've got that. Um, okay, I might give it. Well, I mean, I, I honestly do. I am missing it. I am missing sport, yeah. and I'm a person whose summer is going to be not quite as lovely as I'd hoped because I would have loved the Olympics as well and and Euro, you know, Euro 2020, and it's all gone. And even flaming Wimbledon, which I wasn't that bothered about, I'm going to. I even missed the boat race, and that normally just really gets on my wick. <laughs> Sticking with TV deals for a moment, uh, there's also been a resolution to the long-running dispute between the BBC and Pact about iPlayer. Uh, Anne, can you nutshell this for us? Uh, they've agreed that if you make a program, they can have the rights to it on iPlayer for 12 months rather than three months. Correct. So it was 30 days, wasn't it? So now it's a year. And then some interesting stuff about whether or not, I suppose that's when the lawyers get in the room about whether those are exclusive rights for 12 months or not exclusive rights for 12 months and what that means for producers in terms of selling it to other on-demand services in other countries. I was trying to get my head around this. So after that 12 months is over, that programme can be sold or that series can be sold anywhere in the world. Yeah, but the interesting part about it is then who gets the money when it is sold because that's part of the deal, isn't it, Boyd? It, it used to be just the indies were able to sell it on to Netflix or, or whoever, but now the BBC were getting 5% less, I think, yeah. when, it, when it sells yeah. after a year for the benefit of having had it on iPlayer for yeah. a year. Yeah, which seems fair mm-hmm. enough because a lot of the independent producers of, of these shows, 
it, they just seem to have to kind of agree to allow their stuff to be on iPlay for a year, which is an incredibly long time. It's brilliant for the consumer, for the viewer. But I always thought it was a weird thing that, they, that, that, that you know, great shows like Line of Duty are around for a year and presumably not, making hardly any money off of DVD and uh, being on Netflix, etc. Um, so it seems fair enough that the BBC is going to make less money out of that, absolutely. The thing with the rights that have been agreed in this deal, though, is I think it will come down to that exclusivity, non-exclusivity thing, because it is also about British content making a name for itself around the world and not having to wait 12 months. So I found out mainly about normal people via someone I follow in Australia going on about it and effectively saying everyone needs to watch this immediately. And it was, I think, a co-production with RTE, or they certainly had a lot of involvement. I don't think we'd want to wait 12 months to export that to the world when everyone's talking about it in the UK. So I don't quite understand how, I, I guess not every single production will be exclusive rights on iPlayer. Well, you will not have to wait 12 months for more media news. We'll be back after this. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Welcome back to the Media Podcast. Jane Boyd and Anne are still with me. Let's talk radio ratings because the Q1 radar figures are in. Uh, Now, this quarter extends just one week into the restrictions. So... Obviously, there are plenty of predictions of a spike in radio listening due to lockdown, but those won't be vindicated for another three months. Uh, What we can see, Jane, nonetheless, in just those few days of lockdown on the stats is a 23% year-on-year growth for LBC. Um, So that does show, I guess, that amongst escapism, people are are hungry for news. Yeah, and um, there's something about the punch and the sheer vim of LBC that does just absolutely drag you in. And I listen as much to be irritated as entertained. But it doesn't matter why I'm listening. 
I am listening. Um, and I think that, I mean, it, that is essentially the secret of their success, that um, Nick Ferrari can just have me pinging off the walls within 10 minutes or 10 seconds some mornings of, of listening, starting to listen to him. And I, I, I should be listening to the Today programme um, on my way into work. And I'm not. And I'm listening to Nick Ferrari. So why, why is that? It's because... He's offering me, or and his callers are offering me a view of the world that I might not hear in my place of work. And I think that is no bad thing. Um, also, I listen a lot to Five Live still, and I think I have not listened to as many podcasts lately because I want live radio and I want news and I want the very latest information. However difficult it might be, I'm finding that I'm listening to as much news radio as in the past. I certainly haven't been retreating into music which i know that the rajas indicate good ratings for six music um and people turning to classic maybe but that um, it's a very personal thing that hasn't been what i've been doing i, I know I mean, and with your radio TechCon hat on the story of six music going up and up and up and up over consecutive rajas for years now people say that's sort of early mover advantage you know they were there they had the marketing campaign they were on DAB radio people understood what digital radio was through six music and now it's paid off but you think of some of the other digital only stations that have been around almost as long and they're still frankly deeply unpopular what is it about six music I think they've got their own their own style haven't they they've become part of people's way of being especially people who maybe are working at home at the moment it's something that people have on on the background that's not the kind of overprocessed pop that you might get on other stations um i don't think that their success came out of particularly a marketing campaign it came out of the threat of closure and then <laughs> yeah. lots of people uh, doing their own organic marketing yeah. Um, yeah. and that's what really turned them uh, into the mainstream i also think that quite a lot of lbc's success in the last quarter has been i don't know if you remember there was this news story that was happening quite a lot at the beginning of the year called no Brexit. what was it oh, that. And, yeah and 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 often that was a disadvantage that five live has because sometimes there'd be a live vote happening in parliament and you'd want to hear it and you'd go to five live and there'd be some wrestling match. match on yeah and and so lbc you knew you could go to lbc and it would have what was actually happening straight away so that i think has probably also helped do you agree with jane though Anne, that you're listening to more live radio at the moment i know you're a voracious consumer of podcasts i probably slightly but yes i, I consume a lot of podcasts i think that it will be interesting to see what happens in the next radar the anecdata suggests more people are listening live mm. um and most people do listen to live stuff anyway but broadly very very roughly very roughly around two thirds of listening happens at home in normal times and around one third happens in cars or at work so when we have this quarter where people perhaps aren't so much in their cars or at work it will be interesting to see what happens to where people are listening the woman's hour podcast which is one of the bbc's most successful podcasts is has really done well um in lockdown interestingly and i think that's because a lot of our listeners are slightly older, but also uh, people who might have been out at work during the day and wouldn't ever have listened live to the to the radio version of Woman's Hour. And now maybe are seeking out a special time when the kids are in bed and when they finished homeschooling or whatever and listening to the programme in podcast form later in the day. I, I don't I wonder if that's almost an anti-LBC listen in a way. Like, you know, you're, it's it's the news as lifestyle, isn't it? Rather than the news being shouted at you. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you get lovely, whispery me or lovely Jenny. Um, and we're nice, gentle folk who'd never do any harm to anyone. Um, and it's it's a great, it's a comfort brand. It's one of the BBC's legacy, legacy brands, which is 
um, I think at the same time as my appetite for live radio has increased, I am um, loving the gentler things as well that, that Radio 4 provides. And I guess sometimes we, we fit into that category too. It really will be interesting to see. Um, I'm assuming that the, the Five Live and the LBC audiences will go up another massive amount in the next in the next Ray Jars. Well, I think it's interesting as to whether Five, five Live, I mean, I'm a Five Live obsessive, and their figures usually go up when they have big live football matches, don't they, to mm. a big live tournament. So they haven't had any live sport in this period. And yet I'm still listening to it obsessively and enjoying them, yeah. their creative ways around the fact they don't have any live sport. I'm loving that. Um, I also think, I, I, I hear people tell me that um, podcasts are going are becoming more and more successful and popular um, because people are looking for other outlets um, and to kind of, as you say, Jane, enjoy a kind of more relaxed thing. I, I'm, you know, I'm. I, I was outraged that fortunately took a two-week break. I have to say, um, and I think contractual reasons. Uh, boy. Okay, all right. As long as you're back um, this week, that's fine. Um, but my own, like, my own. I have an Arsenal podcast that we do every week that we've carried on doing, despite the fact that obviously our smart playing football and we're getting more listeners, even though this, you know, we're kind of rambling on uh, with hardly anything to talk about. But the creative way around that, it was almost more interesting in a way than the obvious discussion of these things. But again, yeah. I wonder if that comes down to comfort listening. I mean, yeah. uh, just by way of contrast with the radio figures, uh, Acast, which is the network that hosts this podcast, have reported an 18% increase in listens year on year since lockdown. They track over 2 billion downloads per year, so that is significant. Um, but I wonder how many of those downloads are, or things like that Louis Theroux podcast, which has launched in the last few weeks, which mm. I, I haven't listened to it, and I'm sure it's great, but I mean, it couldn't be safer, really, could it? One of the BBC's biggest stars on a Radio 4 branded show talking to massive celebrities. It's not really a change of listening into podcasts. It's people seeking something comfortable. You sounded a bit bitter there, Ollie, actually. No, yeah, not at all. Yeah. I've listened to it and it's really good, but I, I, you're absolutely right. It's like the latest of an endless series of celebrity interview podcasts, of which there are plenty. But when they're done well, I'm sorry, it's still that relaxed, you know, vibe you get that you get from Fortunately, that you get actually as well from Louis' one. Louis talking to John Ronson for an hour is 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 wonderful. And even though John no, Ronson, I'd, I'd listen to yeah. it and I, I want to listen to it, but I'm just saying, is that really a shift of listening? Or is it just the kind of thing people want to listen to is in lots of disparate places now? Mm. The latter, I'm sure you're right, yeah. But it still couldn't, I haven't actually listened to the Louis Theroux one. It couldn't be a radio show, could it? It's on Radio 4, but they cut it down. Oh, is it? They? It's on, yeah, eight thirty, I, I believe. I must it's quite, <laughs> it's quite, it's 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 quite raunchy for Radio Four. That the Boy George one is gets oh. raunchy, so yeah. Oh, you'd, have it, oh, you'd have him, you'd have him on. Fortunately, definitely. Um, briefly, let's talk about Radio Two because they've got a new. Well, they're not called controllers anymore, are they? What are they called? Editors or leaders or something? I think they're heads because I think that's heads. cheaper than a controller. <laughs> yes, yeah, so there's the controller. Especially if it's a woman, right, Jane? You're so yeah. young and so cynical. Um, yes, it's great. Yeah, and I think I've met Helen. She knows she seems she's well, she's a real um, Radio 2 person, isn't she? She's this been is there. Helen Thomas, who's Helen the new Thomas, yeah. head of station. Yes. Um, I actually think I think Radio 2 has been brilliant. Um, some of the stuff, some of the content that Jeremy Vine is getting, the human content, um, I love. I love all the stuff that he has on his programme. I think Sarah Cox is just a, a genius broadcaster. I think she gets it right. She's got a really light touch, fantastic sense of humour, but also reflects some of the, the tough times that people are having at the moment too. I just think it's in a really good place. I suppose if there were questions about Radio 2, it would... I don't know, it seems a bit harsh, but there are one or two question marks, I guess, over the breakfast show, if you're going to be really, really harsh. Because ratings haven't really recovered from the Chris Evans days, have they? I mean, they, they haven't. But change change always brings about... I, I, I just don't like 
I, I don't want to be unfair to Zoe Ball because I think she's a great broadcaster. It's a really good, positive, fun program. Um, so if I was going to criticise it, I'd say perhaps sometimes it was a bit too busy. And a bit for me, I'm not particularly the, the sort of Celebrity Friday thing, um, which Chris Evans did did as well. I find that a bit there's a bit too much going on for me there. I'm not I'm not invested in that really. Right. Rumours around BBC Four. Should we talk about those? Boyd, I guess you're the person to come to first on this. BBC Four isn't closing, is is what sources are saying. Yeah. But nonetheless, yeah. enough sources were saying that it was going to be closing for the Daily Telegraph to report that it was. So what's going on, do you think? Well, who knows? I think, first of all, I think you have to take it with a pinch of salt. You know, right-wing newspapers, relentlessly anti-BBC right-wing newspapers... With stories like these, I'm not sure, you know, sources say that the BBC... So the, the, the Telegraph story said that um, the BBC was planning on shutting it down as a channel, like they did with BBC Three. So BBC Three, you know, not too long ago, was an actual channel that broadcasts um, linearly, as well as you being able to watch it in your own time. Now, of course, it's this weird thing thing where you can watch normal people on the iPlayer before it arrives on BBC One later that day, etc. Um, same with Killing Eve. And they were saying they're going to do that roughly with BBC Four. But I wonder, because BBC Four doesn't have that many original programmes and hasn't had for a long while. It stopped commissioning scripted shows ages ago, years ago. It doesn't have any original comedy or drama. So it has, um, you know, it has doc- great documentaries. But if you look at the... It, it does feel to me like they're preparing to do something with BBC Four. I would say that because if you look at the programmes that are now on BBC Two, there's, a, there's documentaries about like Duran Duran and Boomtown Rats on BBC Two. Peter Sellers last <laughs> Saturday, which was a brilliant show. And I, it felt like a BBC Four show though. Um, and I do mm. feel, I get the sense that they're commissioning more BBC Four type shows on BBC Two than they have done. There's a new um, book club show, for example, that's going to be on BBC Two soon with Sarah Cox. And also so, some more kind of Sky Arts type yeah, shows on BBC right, Four. Right. I don't know if you saw that life drawing live thing. Yeah. I was like, this yeah. doesn't feel like BBC but Four. You can, this is a bit yeah, too cheap. You can count on the fingers <laughs> of one hand, the, the, as you say, the cheap new stuff on BBC Four every week. Um, so, I mean, I, I love BBC Four. Don't get me wrong. I absolutely loved it. I was, I was gutted when they, they got rid of BBC Three as a channel. Now the rumours are they're going to bring that back as a channel and get rid of BBC yeah. Four show. The whole thing is a mess. Um, I don't, okay. I don't so know if why. it's a mess. Yeah. Isn't the reason that it's a mess, Anne, because people don't really care about brands anymore anyway. I know we've just talked about the controller or the head or the boss or whatever she's going to be of Radio 2. Radio 2 is a big brand. But on telly, if the move really is to iPlayer, basically, it doesn't matter what channel commissioned it, does it? People don't care. They get it. They get that normal people's for young people and life drawing, drawing live is for old people. And you don't need to call it BBC3 and BBC4. I don't think I don't think that's right. And I don't think that's right, especially not for the kind of audience, uh, the target audience that BBC4 has. Um, their demographic is slightly older. And I think that BBC4 as a brand, whether it's on television or whether it's an iPlayer only offer, um, is one of those things that's strategically important for the BBC, a bit like Radio 3 is, in that it doesn't actually have that many listeners or viewers, but the ones they do have are influential and make decisions about whether or not the BBC should exist. And you need to make sure that you provide programmes to that audience, otherwise you are cutting yourself off. But if it was just the subcategory arts, if it was just BBC arts on iPlayer, wouldn't that be the same? And then you could put the BBC 2 stuff and the BBC 1 stuff that was high-minded enough in there as well. 
I don't think uh, there are still people who watch telly for telly and go, what's on what's on the actual channel right now? I want to watch it. And I think that, that it's going to be it's going to be a difficult sell to say that we're going to take that off as a channel entirely. I mean, Jane, if BBC Four style programmes remain part of the BBC's output, does it matter whether or not there's a terrestrial BBC Four? I wouldn't have thought so. In fact, I've if I'm really honest, I can count on the fingers of one hand how many times I have use the services of BBC Four. So um, it's not played a big part in my life. I don't really understand why their best stuff can't just naturally have a home on BBC Two or uh, online. Yeah, what, what, why does it need to happen at all? But also, I suppose, to go back to, I think, the point that Boyd was making, um, right-wing newspaper or traditionally anti-BBC broadsheet has a pop at the BBC at a time when the BBC has arguably never been um, more well, certainly in recent times, never been closer to the nation's bosom um, than it is right now. I mean, I think it's really a fascinating question about is there it is it possible actually to criticise the BBC in the next couple of years in the way that it had been got at? Um, I, I, I'm not suggesting that a pandemic is a good idea because clearly, plainly, it isn't. But you probably could argue it's not been bad news for the BBC um, in any number of ways and I that, that's, I, I edit that so I don't sound like a callous cow but um, there is no doubt that, I'm going to try and think of a way of phrasing this, there is no doubt that the, the terrible uh, the COVID-19 has presented the BBC with an opportunity to re-establish itself at the heart of um, national life and just because I work for it, I probably would say this anyway, but I, I do think it's acquitted itself really well. I think it's been so nimble, and I'm not talking about uh, radio stations, actually. I think that stuff that BBC Education has put together has just been phenomenal. And I'd also actually put in a word for the people who've just organised the way we work in the building, and my, my own, um, actually my own bosses who have split programme t- uh, program teams into into individual groups made it possible for programs to carry on happening um and and just based on the emails that our program gets and our audience are traditional emailers uh there is genuine warmth and affection for the organization in a way that there hasn't been for a while okay i'm good i want to cut this short before it becomes any more of a queen speech but and um... i've got more to say on that than how wonderful <laughs> the bbc is contact my agent but boyd I suppose everything that Jane's just said can be tempered by the fact that the bottom line is that the BBC's income might be affected by COVID-19. You might not think so at first because of the licence fee, uh, but there are issues in terms of international programme sales. There are issues in the cost of news. Um, there's this looming thing of, of pensioners and the licence fee and, and the BBC having to stump the bill. So there are still going to be discussions about the BBC down the track scene. Yes, that's true. Although I do think um, you'd, you'd say that it's it's a more of a problem for Channel Four and ITV, who's you know who facing the advertising crisis of the moment. Um, but yeah, I, I think the whole BBC Four story. I think I, I agree with everything Jane said, but I think the whole BBC Four story is also partly about you know anticipating that the next um, DG will have to make cuts, as you say, due, partly due to the pension situation, all of that. And BBC Four and cutting a whole service. It feels like the six music situation all over again, where cutting a whole service is going to create such a big um, rumpus and uproar and fury, particularly among the BBC Four audience, that it makes sense almost to float it as a possibility 
and I'm not saying, I don't, conspiracy theories, I'm not saying it's an entire conspiracy theory, but I can imagine some people within the BBC suggesting this to whoever reported it in the Telegraph and seeing what, and seeing what emerges. And in the end, there being a big Save BBC4 campaign, although I totally agree that there's a handful of shows really that could easily transplant to BBC2 in actuality. But I can see it being making sense as a strategy to remind people if we have to make cuts and we have to cut a whole channel, then BBC might well go. Okay, there is just time to squeeze in our legendary media quiz. Oh no. Today, we play Beat the Bookshelf with Richard and Judy. Keep Reading and Carry On is the TV couple's latest iteration of their Channel 4 book club, featuring lockdown recommendations from celebrity guests and reviews of new releases. I'm going to give you the name and the premise of four books featured in the series so far. All you have to do is tell me who wrote them. Buzz in with your name when you know the answer, so ready? Let's go. Who wrote this? Home Stretch, the story of a small town in Ireland hit by tragedy in 1987. Anne. Anne. Isn't that Graham Norton's? It is Graham Norton's book, yes. His third novel, published in October after the success of A Keeper and Holding, which came out in 2016. Here's author number two. Who wrote Grown Ups, the inside story of a big disjointed family struggling to say what they mean? Jane. Marion Keys. Correct. Uh, Her latest novel was given a thumbs up by Vic Hope and Rob Reinder uh, on Richard and Judy's Book Club. Boyd, this is your chance to get in, otherwise, really, this is a two-horse race. (laughs) Here's book number three. Who wrote Slime, the kids' book set Uh, on a little island where... Wow, (laughs) where a horrible bunch of grown-ups live. Yes, Boyd. David Williams. It was David Williams, who is actually one of your special interests, isn't he? One one of my special interests. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not stalking him. You You wrote a book about David Williams and Matt Lucas, correct? I did, correct, okay. Yeah. Yes, there we go. Right, yeah. Um, yes, his new book is set on the Isle of Mulch and is out now. Uh, and so I guess this is the tie break. This oh. has not been fixed. This is It all comes down to this. Who wrote the original novel on which the hit show we've all been talking about, Normal People, Jane. is based? Um. Jane. Jane got there first. I'm sorry. I saw it with my own eyes. Jane, go ahead and take it. Take the prize. Uh, Sally Rooney. Yes, good. Oh, God, it nearly went then. You've won it for the BBC. Oh, yes. Would you like to hear more about my thoughts on the, the, how wonderful the BBC is? Uh, the BBC Three production has helped win record audiences for iPlayer and sparked rumours of a second series, uh, if they can film the sex stuff, as Boyd was suggesting. Uh, that is it for today. My thanks to Jane Garvey and Charles and Boyd Hilton. If you enjoy what we do here on the Media Podcast and you want to help us keep making it, then why not take out a voluntary subscription? You can visit themediapodcast.com slash donate and select an amount to help us keep going all year round. And you can catch up with our previous episodes and get new ones as soon as they're released by subscribing for free via our website, themediapodcast.com. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Rebecca Grisdale-Sherry. The Media Podcast is a PPM production. Until next time, bye-bye. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.